Uh, one of the questions we ask when we meet someone for the first time is, what do you do? What's your job? Uh, I guess because how you earn a living gives us some idea about what a person's like. But I want to suggest there's a more important question, a more fundamental question, not what do you do, but who are you? Who were you this week? How do you think of yourself? It's more important because who you are affects what you do. Uh, It's your self-identity that determines your behaviour. For example, think about relationships with people. Uh, If you feel insecure and threatened by someone else's ability, then that will show itself in how you act. Uh, You might work hard to compete against them or you might criticise or make fun of them Look for ways to build up your own self-confidence. On the other hand though, if you're confident in who you are, then you're not going to feel threatened by somebody else and you can actually rejoice in their success, you can compliment them. Or let's think about marriage. If you feel loved and appreciated in your marriage, then that'll show itself. You'll be free to serve and to be selfless. You can be confident and comfortable in your relationship. But if you feel unloved, if you feel unappreciated, then you may get bitter and frustrated and resentful or or maybe you might strive to perform, to to earn some attention or some appreciation. The way you see yourself affects how you act. It's the same with the Christian life. What's your identity as a Christian? Who are you? How do you see yourself? A sinner saved by grace then you will be able to live out that gratitude. If you see yourself, on the other hand, though, as a good person who has to work hard to earn your salvation, uncertain whether you've actually made it or not, then you're going to behave very differently, aren't you? Who are you as a Christian? That's a powerful question because it'll show itself in how you act and what your attitudes are. The Bible gives us all sorts of answers to that question about who we are. Uh, Do you see yourself as a child of God? Are you a disciple, a follower? Are you a student? Are you a herald or a witness? Uh, Are you a lover of God? Are you a saint, a leader, a shepherd? It's an important principle here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Remember what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. The Corinthian church thought they were wise, they were rich, they were powerful, they were winners. That was their self-identity and so they behaved like that. They behaved the same way as the Corinthian city around them. They chose sides that they proudly supported. Uh, They were individual rather than united. And so here at this point in the letter, Paul wants to give them some self-identity reassignment. He wants to remind them about who they are because that's where you begin if you want to change behaviour. And he's going to use a number of different pictures to do it. He begins in chapter 3 verse 1 by saying that they're infants. That's the first image. Now that may come as a bit of a shock to the Corinthians God uh, had richly blessed them. Paul acknowledged that back in chapter 1. He said, in all their speaking and their knowledge, they were impressive. God had blessed them. Chapter 4, though, they, uh, the Corinthians seem to think uh, that they're pretty impressive as well. 
Paul describes somewhat sarcastically uh, how they view themselves. Verse 8, chapter 4, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have become kings. That's how they think of themselves. Paul talks in chapter 2 about how he has a message for the mature, a message of wisdom, deep truths that comes from God's spirit. Uh, And the Corinthians no doubt thought they were ready for that sort of message. But Paul says instead they've got it wrong. Uh, He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Far from being the spiritual, mature ones, uh, feeding on deep, solid wisdom, Paul says they're actually babies. Uh, And why is that? Verse 3, you're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? They'd begun as worldly before they were Christian, we all did, but they weren't supposed to stay babies. They weren't supposed to stay worldly, they were supposed to grow up and move on. And yet they hadn't. They were choosing sides, they were arguing and disagreeing. They were choosing their individual preferences rather than what led to unity. And that behaviour doesn't make them mature and sophisticated, Paul says it makes them immature. Who are you? He says, you ought to be mature. Uh, Sorry, you're not mature, you're only infants. So if that's who you are, what should you do? How is that reflected? Well, you need to grow up, says Paul. You need to recognise who you are and then change your behaviour. Second description Paul uses is there in verse 5, begins there in verse 5, they're a field, Uh, they're God's field. He's assigned different sorts of farmers to work among them. Verse 6, Paul planted a seed and Apollos watered it. That was preaching and teaching. But just like real gardening, uh, it's God who makes things grow in a field. That's a church. doesn't matter how clever the person who's watering or planting is, it's only God who can grow the harvest. And so Paul says in verse 5, if you're just a field, why are you focusing on the workers? The workers are just the messenger boys. It doesn't make sense to focus on the messenger boys. When my grandma turned 100, she received a letter from the Queen, delivered by post, it was pretty special, and I understand that the staff in the nursing home made a big deal about the letter and who it had come from. But just imagine if everyone in the nursing home had been more impressed by the postman when he rocked up to deliver the mail. He would have thought that was ridiculous. He says, I'm just the messenger. What are you paying attention to me for? This is the special letter. This is the special message. This is the one from the Queen. And Paul's point is that Corinthians are doing something similar when they focus on Paul and Apollos. They're just postmen. Because it's God who's given this wonderful, powerful message. It's God who makes the church grow. So who are they? Paul reminds them they're God's field with workers in the field and God who causes the growth. And so if that's true, if that's who you are, what should you do? How's that reflected in your action? Well, don't focus on leaders. Don't focus on workers or people. 
Look to God in gratitude and dependence. Next image is there in verse 9. Who are they? They're God's building. They're a field and they're a building. Paul's laid the foundation. That's his specialty. He plants the church. But then others will come along and, and build on top of that foundation. It's leaders. But it's also everyone else, I guess, who works and ministers in the church. If that's true, the end of verse 10, then that means you need to be careful what you build a church with. You have to make sure they're well built or they won't make it to the end. Just like buildings in Indonesia when an earthquake or a tsunami strikes, they need to be well made. Same with the church. Verse 11, Paul is certain that the foundation is solid. That was Jesus. Uh, That's what Paul built with. Uh, Paul doesn't build any churches any other way. Uh, But what matters is what building materials go on top of that foundation of Jesus. And Paul gives a couple of examples. You can use good materials, gold, silver or stone, or you can build with rubbish. You can build with wood and hay and straw. And verse 13, the quality of the work will be seen in whether it lasts or not. The day will bring it to light. That's judgement day he's thinking about. And there are two sorts of consequences on that day depending on how you've built. First for the building and second for the builder. Verse 14, if what he has built survives, he, the builder, will receive a reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Paul's plan of the church, others have come along and built on what he started and instead of building a strong, united building, these workers, uh, these members of the church are taking sides. There's pride, there's jealousy, there's quarrels, there's divisions. They're focusing on men instead of building on Christ and the church is split. It's that sort of behaviour that is building with wood and hay and straw. Uh, A building like that won't survive the day. The church should be about building on the foundation of Jesus. Poor materials, I guess, is any sort of work that doesn't have the goal of growing people uh, as followers of Jesus. If he's the foundation, strong growth is building people to follow Jesus. And there's all sorts of ways that churches can get distracted from that. Uh, All sorts of man-centred tasks, running childcare centres or aged care centres, having various clubs of different sorts, music groups and sports clubs and dramatic societies, all sorts of man-centred building that won't make it to the end. Now, there's nothing wrong with churches doing those sorts of things as long as they're part of a strategy that moves people towards Jesus, that builds them on a foundation of Jesus. The problem comes, I reckon, with most good things when we lose the strategy, when we forget what the goal is in those tasks and we end up concentrating on building those things rather than on the goal of getting people ready and building them on Jesus. It seems like the Corinthians are running that risk They're distracted from the main game by their divisions and quarrels. And Paul warns them it'll be a terrible day for builders like that. What loss? Verse 15, the builders will be saved because 
their own salvation is based on Christ but it seems like they'll escape, uh, they'll just make it. Uh, perhaps they won't receive any well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus. So who are you? Paul says you're God's building built on a foundation of Jesus. If that's true, what should you do? Uh, make sure you build on Jesus with solid materials. Uh, grow out of him. Don't get distracted by people. Paul's next picture is there in verse 16. Not only are they a building, they're a special type of building, they're a temple. They're set apart, they're holy. God's focus and attention is on them, just as it was on the temple. And just like God's glory filled the temple, so his spirit fills his church. God's Holy Spirit fills the church and so the temple itself is holy, it's, it's precious and it's pure. Now if that's who you are, God's temple, how does that affect what you do? Well you should be holy, you're a temple, be holy, be different, be pure, be above reproach, be fair, be welcoming, be inclusive in the right use of that word, you're different. And I guess uh, a temple is also precious in that sense of holy as well. Uh, It's precious to God and it should be precious to us. We should be careful to protect it, that we don't destroy it with arguments and disunity and selfishness. God will jealously defend his holy temple, his church, and we should do the same. It's comforting when we think of the church like that, isn't it? That God... Uh, is jealously protecting his church. Uh, He's like the big brother when the little brother walks through the playground at school, the little kindy kid, and he's scared of all the big kids, but uh, he's not scared because he knows his big brother is jealously looking after him. That's God looking after his holy temple. We're not just any old group of people that meets together. Uh, We're precious to God. We're precious and holy. So we should value uh, this church the way God does. Well, Paul's fifth aspect of their identity is there in verse 21. Uh, He's concluding his argument in the chapter. Uh, I've, I've shown you who you are, now here's what you should do. So then, no more boasting. But then he takes it in an interesting direction. Uh, you want to cling, you want to hold on to one leader and, and let go of another. The reality is so much better than just what you think you have. No more boasting about men. And then he says, all things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, Kephas, the world, or life, or death, the present, the future, everything is yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. God has blessed them so much. As his children, they've got this inheritance stored up for eternity. They've got a victorious life in a new heavens and a new earth that death and sickness is defeated. Everything is theirs. All of the leaders who've spoken into their Christian life are theirs. Not just one of them. And not just human leaders. They have Christ. They own Christ. Christ belongs to them. He's the greatest and the richest and the loveliest of all. They have so much. 
and yet they fight over which group has the best teacher. And Paul can't understand it. It's like two children underneath a table fighting over a scrap of bread. But on the table is the finest and most extravagant of banquets and it's theirs to eat and they're worried about a crust of bread. When you know what your inheritance is, you'll behave accordingly. You'll be filled with a thankfulness to God for every spiritual blessing you have in Christ. You'll be thankful and it'll also mean that the other temptations around you won't distract you in the same way. Wealth and influence and pleasure and approval from people. They'll lose their attraction, they'll lose their power because you know what you have. Uh, you know your inheritance. When you know who you are, you'll behave accordingly. But Paul wants to actually push the lesson a bit further. Into chapter 4, which we didn't read, Paul actually turns the attention to himself again, to his own identity uh, and how that influences what he does. And the first image he uses, he, he's doing it again for the, for the uh, Corinthian people, but the first image he uses is there in verse 1 of chapter 4. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. There's a couple of different words there. The servant word is, is about being an assistant, someone who reports to a superior. Uh, and the word to do with, uh, translated as the one entrusted, uh, is about the chief steward of a house, uh, like the chief servant who had authority to do all sorts of things over other servants and the budget and running the house. That's how Paul sees himself. His point is there in verse 2. That's how he thinks of himself and so how's that going to affect how he acts? Well, his motivation will will be to be faithful to his master. When he thinks, when he has a decision to be made, his decision, the question he asks is, what would Jesus do? He's the master, I'm the servant. Uh, Would it please him? Uh, He's he's performing for an audience of one. He's not concerned what others think. Of course, we need to learn that too. We're so easily swayed by public opinion. We're so democratic. We want to please the most number of people rather than simply pleasing Jesus. We're his servant, we're his steward. The second way Paul thinks of himself is, uh, jump down into verse 9, he's a ridiculed fool. On the one hand, the Corinthians thought they were so sophisticated and impressive and yet Paul's happy to acknowledge that he and the other apostles are the opposite. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. Everyone's laughing at us, he said. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe. We're fools for Christ. That's God's plan. Uh, to, To make these apostles the least, the last, the unimportant, condemned to die, a public spectacle, taking up their cross daily, just like Jesus did. Down in verse 11, he describes the, the, the working conditions of being an apostle. I can't imagine too many people applying for this job description. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, brutally treated, homeless 
we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's quite a description, isn't it? That's what they used to be like. That's what they're still like. Only a fool would choose a job like that. But that's what Paul calls himself. He's a fool for Christ. But he's happy to do it. God's called him to it. It seems so much against the way the world says we should think of ourselves, doesn't it? The world says a positive self-image is what you need to make it through. You need self-confidence. But God's way, as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians, is, is to use foolish, weak, dependent people to proclaim a foolish, weak message about a crucified Saviour. And that's the way God's power will really be seen. And so what we need instead of a, a, a solid self-image, a positive self-image, is to have God-confidence, a, a God-image instead. Who is Paul? Well, he's Christ's fool. So what does that mean about how he behaves? When the Gospel Paul preaches changes people, uh, when it brings them from death to life, then because Paul's only a fool, the glory has to go to God. It's not Paul. Paul can quite easily turn the attention onto God because he's a fool. Paul is humble and dependent. He wants the Corinthians to learn the, his lesson. Verse 14, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Think differently, change your behaviour, he's saying. And then Paul brings out this last aspect of his self-identity, dear children, and he says he's their father. Verse 15, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. He's a father. He never gives up on his children. He protects. He guides. They learn by imitating, just like children. Paul says, verse 16, imitate me. He's sending Timothy so that Timothy can remind them about Paul's way of life. Uh, Copy my life. A father also disciplines. And so he finishes off the chapter by talking about discipline. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Dad's coming. Wait till your father gets home. My mum used to say when I was naughty, and maybe your mum might have as well. Paul's saying the same thing. I'm your father, I'm coming. I'm coming to discipline, so make sure you get rid of that arrogance before I get there. He's a father and so he wants to see his children grow up to be mature and healthy and strong. That's what Paul wants. Imitate my way of life, that's his plea. But it's not just about doing, is it? If Paul was just saying, pull your socks up, behave better, do, 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 that would just be legalism and it would never work. But Paul's point is that doing begins with being. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you belong to. And then the doing will flow out of that. So where have we, what have we covered tonight? 
Who are you? You're infants, so grow up. Who are you? You're God's field. So look to God for the growth rather than to other things. Who are you? You're God's building. So make sure you're building on Jesus with good materials. Who are you? You're God's holy temple. So value and respect your church. Be holy. Who are you? You've inherited everything. So rejoice gratefully in what you have. Who are you? You're Christ's servants. Nobody else's. Work for his approval. Who are you? You're Christ's fool. So give him the honour. Don't look for it yourself. All of that might seem like a whole lot of work. You might seem fairly discouraged, but remember God's promise at verse 20 there of chapter 4. Paul says, The kingdom of God isn't a matter of talk, but of power. God has given you his Holy Spirit power to be able to know who you are and then to work that out in his strength so that he receives the glory rather than you. Luke's going to come and pray for us. Thanks, Luke.